Hello and welcome to the second episode of our new radio show, A Republic to Keep. I'm your host, Liam Bauer. Thank you for tuning in with us today. So we have several guests with us today, so let's go around for some introductions. Dave? Uh, yeah, I'm Dave. I graduated from Marquette in 2020. I'm major in political science, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Liam. Thank you. And we got Brian. Hi, I'm Brian. I graduated in 2020 also from Marquette, and I'm currently in the law school. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Brian. And Henry? Hi, I'm Henry. I also graduated um, from Marquette in the class of 2020, and I studied biomedical sciences. Well, thank all you guys for being here. Go Marquette. So, Go Marquette. <laughs> for today's episode, we will be looking into the United States minimum wage. To give some background, the federal minimum wage in the United States was started in 1938 by the Fair Labor and Standards Act. This act was part of the New Deal reforms of the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration in order to help with economic recovery during the Great Depression. Originally, the act implemented a minimum wage of just 25 cents an hour, which adjusted for inflation today would be equal to roughly $4.60 an hour. The real minimum wage continued to increase in both nominal and real terms until peaking in 1968, at about $1.60 per hour, which would be equivalent to around $12 today. The real minimum wage adjusts for inflation and cost of living. So, therefore, the amount of goods one could buy with $1.60 in 1968 would be roughly equivalent to the amount of goods one could buy in 2021 with $12. In real dollars, the minimum wage saw gradual decreases since 1968 and has hovered between $7 and $9 in real terms since the 1990s. Overall, the federal minimum wage has increased 22 times since it began in 1938. The last time the United States minimum wage was increased was almost 12 years ago in July of 2009. Since then, federal minimum wage has stayed at $7.25 an hour. In 2012, several hundred fast food workers in New York City banded together to protest working conditions. Among their demands was a $15 an hour minimum wage. The, quote, fight for 15 movement has picked up steam in the last decade. Over half of states and dozens of cities have increased their minimum wage since 2012. California is currently the state with the highest minimum wage at 14 an hour. And Seattle is currently the city with the highest minimum wage at $15.75 for small businesses and $16.39 for large. Several other cities and states have pledged to phase in, like Florida, a 15 minimum wage in the next several years. Yesterday, February 19th, the House of Representatives released the text of their COVID-19 relief bill, the American Rescue Plan of 2021, which includes raising the minimum wage incrementally to $15 an hour by 2025. Now, this proposal would also eliminate waivers to that allow businesses and employers to pay individuals with disabilities less than the minimum wage and eliminate the lower tipped wage so servers at restaurants will also be paid $15 per hour. Groups such as the AFL-CIO, NAACP, and 9to5's National Organization of Working Women have locally supported a $15 minimum wage, while groups such as the Chamber of Commerce, National Federation of Independent Businesses, and Restaurant Workers of America have come out against the proposal. Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, has announced that increase in the minimum wage by 2025 will lift 900,000 Americans out of poverty. But it will also cause 1.4 million to become unemployed and add an additional 54 billion onto the United States deficit over 10 years between 2021 and 2031. Due to increased Medicare and unemployment benefits, as well as the welfare safety net. So let's start the discussion off today. First question to start a discussion would be, should the United States 
enact a $15 an hour minimum wage federally? Would this overall benefit or would it hurt the American economy and American workers? So what do you guys think? The $15 an hour question. Yeah, I mean, can you guys hear me? I just want to make sure since I'm calling in. Yep. All right. Um, So, I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence with this situation. Um, I've gone back and forth in the last couple of years, as many of you guys who know me would know. But um, raising it to $15, raising it in general, does seem like just a logical option. You know, it seems like the right thing to do, um, just raising it in general to make it more of a livable wage. Um, Also, because, as you mentioned, um, you know, it hasn't been adjusted for inflation in years, um, decades even. And um, but raising it to 15 and raising it as quick as that uh, doesn't seem like the best thing to do right now. I I do see the arguments for um, not raising it because that would, you know, cut employment. It would it would overall hurt the economy a lot more than it would help people um, and have some detrimental effects. So I want to hear both from you guys, um, and hopefully that will help me make my make my uh, more certain decision. Well, so if the- I actually may chime in on this one. Yep. So to be blunt, this is a very gray area. Economists all across the board will tell you different things. Uh, when I was gathering information from different sources concerning the minimum wage, more conservative outlets were going against the $15 minimum wage, as I'm sure you can imagine, whereas more progressive outlets were in favor of a $15 minimum wage. All the numbers across the board were just very different compared to one another. I think it's fair to say that we do need an increase in the minimum wage, but the question is, should it be 15 To that, I'm not too sure. I'm on par with Brian saying changed my mind. I'm just not sure uh, what it should be. But one quote I did find interesting from the AFL-CIO was that uh, if the federal minimum wage had kept pace uh, with workers' productivity since 1968, the inflation-adjusted minimum wage would be approximately $24 an hour. So I think that's something to consider. I'm not saying we should raise it to that degree, but it's uh, something that just makes you think a bit, especially in an era of current high-end income inequality between the wealthy and the poor, exacerbated with the Great Recession and the COVID-19 pandemic. Exactly. And this is a massive jump. I mean, we're going from $7.25 as just the federal minimum wage, which 21 states, as of right now, still have that federal minimum wage of $7.25. 28 states have higher. And to raise it over 100% is unprecedented. The studies really looking at the elasticity or to explain the elasticity, that means how much a dollar, for instance, increase in the minimum wage will directly infect the employment rate. So how much will a 100% increase of minimum wage affect how many people will lose their jobs? They, it's very hard to predict with this sudden increase over four years of over 100%. Right now, though, the popularity is very much there. For instance, a Pew Research Center poll in 2019 found 67% of Americans favored an increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour, uh, 86% Democrats, and 41% Republicans. But looking at that split between Republicans, 56% of Republicans making $40,000 a year or less supported this increase to $15 an hour uh, minimum wage. And a more recent poll from Hale-Harris has shown that 64% of Americans still support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, those numbers are pretty significant, and these are very reliable polling sites. So there's a very big public approval rating of this. However, we also have to look at the economic side, which is not very salient to the public, and even an economist, because once again, this is unprecedented. Yeah, I actually would like to chime in. Um, one question that I'm wondering if you could speak on um, is I've heard a lot of the argument saying that if people who work minimum wage jobs, if their uh, minimum wage is raised 
from seven twenty five, let's say, to fifteen dollars an hour. Um, why do you? How can you justify raising that and then not raising? Not my personally, but the people saying this argument is like why? Why does my does my wage get to change too? They're now they're now up to like you know ten dollars less than my wage. Um, why do they get to working at these minimum wage jobs? These high schoolers, let's say, working these minimum wage jobs, get to make only ten dollars less than me when I'm twenty, thirty years into my career and I'm only making ten dollars more than them working in a professional job. Um, I'm just working. Wondering if you could speak on that and kind of give me your your take on it, Liam. So you're asking, really, if I'm an adult, why am I not making more? What are you saying? Why isn't there a I guess, graduated minimum wage by age? Yeah, I guess that. But, like, um, not to talk down to the service profession at all, but let's say, okay, so I used to work in a shoe store, and I made minimum wage for a year or two. Um, let's say that somebody who's a nurse makes, I'm, I'm not exactly sure on the details of a nurse's salary, but let's say someone makes, $25 an hour as a nurse. Mm-hmm. They have a professional degree. They went to college. They, you know, um, they, they work their, their butt off for, let's say like 10, 15 years, 20 years, they make 25, $30 an hour. And then now this minimum wage comes in uh, and it's raised to $15 an hour. And they're I just this advanced degree if I'm not making that much more than the minimum exactly. wage. Exactly. There's some 16 year old kid and I'm a 30, 40 year old, you know, uh, adult who who went to college to get this job and you know what i'm saying i know what you're saying and that's a very valid point i mean especially the way the united states education system right is set up higher education is very expensive and so the increase in income is very justified in a lot of those employment i mean henry you can speak on this definitely you're about henry just got into med school by the way and, but med school, not to get you stressed out, Henry, is, as you know, very expensive. But doctors make a decent amount to make up for that and pay off those debts down the road. But I'm then again, when you look at the, those wages that are closer to the minimum wage, a CBO 2019 report looking at increasing that 15 to $15 an hour minimum wage saw that 17 million people below that threshold would have, of course, their wages boosted, but also... 10 million people above making above $15 an hour would also see their wages boosted. So there there every everybody at $15 underneath of course $15 an hour and most people right above that $15 an hour mark would see those pay boosted. And for instance firms looking at efficiency wages or wages that are higher in order to keep good workers and attract better workers. Those would have to go up too. The question is how much? How much what should a manager make as opposed to the regular employee? That's probably going to be a much smaller difference now with this $15 minimum wage. Yeah, that's a good point. So what you're saying pretty much is that the response to that question that I posed is that you're, as a, as a nurse, let's say, your um, your wage is going to likely go up based on the studies that we've seen, based on the data that we've seen? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Likely. But the thing is, it's probably not going to go up, shoot up so much more. And one of the main reasons for the increase in deficit that the CPO is predicting is not just people, more people are going to be on Medicaid and Medicare and these social safety net programs, but the hospital workers' wages will also be going up, likely. Therefore, the cost of that will also be for the government who is paying the Medicare and Medicaid, et cetera, in these benefits. So increase, yeah. the increase in the wages of these workers are also factored in to increase government payments, thus factoring into the deficit. Now, and also, now don't get me wrong, $54 billion over 10 years, that's a lot of money, right? That is. However, when we look at the deficit of the United States over the long run, in 2016 alone, just that year, there was a $585 billion deficit. In 2019 alone, right before the global pandemic and its recession, the deficit was $984 billion. Now, that increase is largely due to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, for instance. 
So when you look at all that, all things considered, $54 billion, so $5.4 billion roughly each year added is pretty incremental, pretty small, but it is still a significant increase that we have to look out for. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and then another question I want to pose to you before we get into kind of the political aspect mm-hmm. of um, this is what is your response or understanding about um, not necessarily what kind of unemployment uh, where, where firms are going to now start to lay off um, their workers because the, they can't pay the higher wages, uh, but just the shift to um, kind of cost reduction in that field, you know, moving more towards technology, moving more towards uh, modernizing the workforce uh, to not have the need for that so that, you know, it, it's, it kind of seems more inevitable that um, these jobs are going to disappear, go across the country, go, go overseas, um, disappear because of technology, um, things like that. So uh, that's just another complication that I've, that I've heard of when, I, when looking up the kind of um, statistics and information around raising the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And Dave, you were, uh, we were talking about this actually the other day uh, about automation taking jobs. Yeah, I was going to say, if I could chime in on this one. Yeah. Uh, the struggle we have with this is that if we do uh, inevitably raise the minimum wage to hypothetically 15, businesses are going to introduce cost-cutting measures. And the downside of increasing the minimum wage is that it's inevitable. It's just going to accelerate um, um, the trend of automation in stores. And as you see right now, if you go to a fast food restaurant or even a grocery store, but um, having the $15 minimum wage, like I said, is just going to – it really just going to accelerate the process. If we didn't raise it, it would just stagnate the process, but it's inevitable. We know that this is the trend. We know that this is going to be the future. We know, we know that these workers are going to be displaced. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. So that's another. That's a whole other can of worms. We could talk about another topic. But, yeah, right now uh, we just had to find out what is the political ramifications for raising the minimum wage and if it really is worth it to increasing it to 15, hypothetically, or 12, as an example. And I'll, I'll d- dive into that uh, can of worms a little bit more uh, right now, if you don't mind. Because the thing about innovation, the thing about these replacement of jobs, as the economy moves forward, there's always creation of new jobs that we wouldn't even think of before. I mean, for instance, in 1900, at the turn of that century, right, roughly 30% of the United States was employed in agriculture and farming. However, to about today, that number is roughly 3% of people. Now, we don't have a 27% unemployment rate. But the thing is, we innovated. Much more jobs were created with industry, with technology development. And is that, that could be definitely a thing we're seeing right now. I mean, Biden's uh, Green New Deal is going to implement a lot of new technology, while some for instance, the coal miners of West Virginia say might lose some jobs. There will also be a lot more produced. So we don't really know. And these jobs, these higher tech jobs, are going to necessitate some more education, some more training, which is probably going to necessitate in a higher wage anyway, which is the other side. So given that, given the direction we're moving in with these more skill, highly skilled, more trained jobs flooding in the market, is there the argument for a $15 minimum wage then? Because that's the direction we're heading in. If I can chime in on that one. Mm-hmm. I, I see what you're saying with that, Liam. Because that, honestly, right now, a bachelor's degree is kind of hard to put to use. You kind of <laughs> like... I feel you. <laughs> yeah, like you do need that graduate. You need that professional degree to really get that highly skilled job. Otherwise, you're going to be searching for jobs for quite a long time. Um, but yeah, that brings in a question. It's like, do you still then need that $15 minimum wage for these, um, I don't want to say lower skill jobs, but other these other jobs that are kind of in, mm-hmm. in market? Um, and those are still essential jobs. So I do think raising that minimum wage is still very important. Yes, it's a different level of education, different level of training required. But there's still jobs that everyday people still use. We still need our service. We still need our grocery workers. We still need um, 
gas station workers. We just we still need these jobs, Absolutely. and they're still very very important. So there should definitely still be that increase in wage. Now, should it be fifteen? I don't know necessarily on that. Um, like they've mentioned, as an example, like maybe like twelve, something like that would maybe be a bit more feasible. Um, I'm not quite sure how it would really affect the economy on that one, to be honest. Um, so I definitely have to do some more research into that. But I think there still needs to be that big um, wage increase because right now 7.25 is nowhere near close as where it needs to be. And the CBO has predicted that the net gain, there will be a net gain in wages of $333 billion between 2021 and 2031. Now, that's a big net gain. But the thing is, this is also unprecedented. This is an estimate. We don't really know. And I would like to also just shift the conversation to one more sector I think that we haven't touched on enough. And that's small businesses here. Because the larger businesses, for instance, we got Target raising its minimum wage to $15 an hour. Hobby Lobby, that has raised it to $17 an hour. You got Amazon, that's raised it to $15 an hour. And Walmart's, that's feeling high pressure to do the same. Right now, it's $11 an hour at Walmart, but many are paid that 15 So these large businesses, it looks like they have the ability to make it there. But the small businesses that are suffering right now, and for instance, it's been found that they are making losses. They are only making about 75% of their income in 2020 compared to 2019, 75%. The, mar- the margins of small businesses aren't very high to begin with roughly 5% for restaurants, not chain restaurants, but those smaller neighborhood restaurants. So will will this flood them? Can they sustain that? I think going back to where um, your statistics were talking about, um, not quite sure on the, can, um, can you remind me on the number of jobs that you said would be unemployment? Oh, CBO is estimating, as of right now, 1.4 million by 2025 will be unemployed if we do the race. Okay, so um, kind of going off of those statistics, I think most of those would be coming from smaller um, independent businesses because, mm-hmm. like you said, they just can't afford to keep their workers, and they may be saying that they don't necessarily need to have that many workers. So I think that's where the unemployment numbers would possibly be coming from. And is anybody, can anybody think of an argument against that, for instance, where, where it might not hurt small businesses or? So your question, um, so your question is, how could raising it to 15 not hurt small businesses? Yes. Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think you stumped <laughs> me there. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it. I really don't know. I think that um, it would could possibly not put out small businesses by, like we said earlier, moving to more cost-effective uh, or cost-reduction uh, kind of techniques. But as for putting the workers out, uh, I feel like that's just a market response. Mm-hmm. Um, the furthest I've ever gone is micro-macroeconomics, so I can't go too far into it, but... Um, it sounds a lot like just the market response that um, kind of is inevitable. And I, I I don't exactly know how we could fix that. It might be more of a reactionary thing um, that we'd have to figure out along the way. But, um, yeah, do you uh, do you have any take on that, Liam or, or Dave? I was thinking if I could chime in. Um, Brian, I actually kind of want to piggyback off your point. Do we know – what the current minimum wage is uh, for small business employees uh, compared to people who work at Walmart, Costco, et cetera. Do we know that number at the top of our heads by, the, by any chance? Actually, I don't know that. And that, the thing is, it does vary a whole lot depending on region where that small business lies. Um, and a lot of the minimum wages that are still the federal minimum wage is located in the south and rural area and states with high rural area populations that are much more spread out. So I do know that. But I also know that a recent CNBC nationwide survey of small businesses said that one third of the small businesses they polled, the owners, 
reported that they will likely lay off employees if a $15 minimum wage is passed. Question. So then uh, the uh, question I have uh, to follow up with that is how many employees do small business um Small businesses, small businesses have when compared to large retailers like Walmart. What's going to be the economic impact? Is it going to be minimal? Minimal? Is it going to be something um, huge? Like what is uh, the economic trade-off uh, with raising the minimum wage for these small business employees? A big worry of mine is that we're going to see Walmart, Target just expand, and then all your mom and pop shops are going to go bye-bye because, well, perhaps not all, but a good amount of those are going to go bye-bye. Because they just cannot afford to keep this going. Uh, and that's just a real, very realistic outlook on it. I mean, that's uh, what's been happening right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Please mm-hmm. support your local businesses during this time, please. Absolutely. And if you haven't, uh, go out, treat yourself to takeout. Or if you have a dine-in option uh, and can do that safely, do that as well. Completely agree. PSA right there. That's true. Um, my only like criticism, or not criticism, cynicism, I guess, with that is, um, can we change public opinion enough on buying local, and you know, finding the economic benefit overall to buying local um, in time for a lot of these small businesses and kind of small business economy to not just disappear altogether at the hands of big conglomerates like. Um, like Amazon and like, you know, um, Walmart and, and places like that. The thing is, it's all about, you know, expediency. It's all about easy access. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we would like to say that we buy more from local things and not just go to Amazon's website. But the fact is that, especially in our demographic, we're just out of college. We don't have, we're not swimming in money, guys. So, it's a lot of times cheaper on Amazon. I can get it in two days. And that's just a very practical outlook on it. Uh, but that practicality isn't so real for those small businesses that don't have that economy of scale. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I don't know how relevant this is, but I do think it's interesting. When I was looking up uh, information for this topic today, um, the push towards gig economies and how that is kind of affecting um the, the workforce in that you don't have to put people down as an employee with places like Uber and um, and Lyft and things like that, DoorDash, um, mm-hmm. so that you don't have to pay them a minimum wage because they're not technically a worker. Um, I just think that, that is such a fascinating kind of um, um, side effect of, you know, just the, the tension in the workforce and, and minimum wage and labor in general in the United States. Absolutely. And actually, I'm glad you brought it up because Uber just lost a very big court case in the UK because Uber now has to pay in the UK their employees minimum wage, they found. So that, I mean, of course, that does not, that's not binding precedent at all for the US. But I mean, what's happening across the pond does impact what's happening over here. I I have, I have a sense that there's going to be some more lawsuits over on this side of the pond after Uber and after those gig economy rolls too, especially with this increase uh, in minimum wage and these calls from many different groups. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And even further than that, I, I mean, this minimum wage topic can, can go on for days because we see, you know, uh, minimum wage not only in needs to be raised in like a grocery store worker who um, is 30 years old and needs to help support their family, but also in disability sub uh, sub minimum wages are much lower, you know, and um, uh, people like that are just it, people who work on tips only I think make two dollars and thirty three cents an hour. Two thirteen. Two thirteen. I mean, yeah, it's 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 crazy, and it, it's not a livable wage, and and I have trouble kind of battling with this livable wage and 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 um, oh they're only 16 they don't need a livable wage because you know all those different situations and i do see it you can't look at the individual too much but you also have to mm-hmm. because um if you start to look at the individual then you're going to have all these different policies kind of floating around where it's not a real 
good way to move forward and say, hey, this is what we need to do because this helps the most people, you know, when you start to look at the individual too much. But at the same time, these are serious issues that we need to address. And I, I think that this is the conversation that started in in the Biden administration um, and even just pushing for $15 with Joe Manchin's pushing for 11 I think this really opens up a conversation that hasn't been opened in the last four even longer. I, I just want to clarify something really quick. The the server minimum wage, it's two thirteen uh minimum wage. But it, and I'm and I was a server over the summer. Um we make a lot more than two thirteen an hour. I and I I made a lot more than fifteen dollars an hour usually as a server. And I wasn't working at some fancy high end restaurant. Um it was a great place what I was working. I loved it. But it wasn't some fancy high end restaurant. So I, I think a lot of servers, in, including myself, I wouldn't wanna get rid of that tipped wage because that means a lot of people aren't going to tip anymore because why would I if I'm making that living wage yeah and that's just what I've heard but also going back to the teenager point raising the minimum wage hurts teenagers a whole lot more um, in, in terms of the especially the projections of the C, CBO the elasticity was or talking about before, basically a measure of how much an increase in minimum wage would affect that increase that increase in unemployment. Now that affects, uh, for instance, a hundred percent a hundred percent increase in minimum wage, right? Is projected to have a 0.4 percent reduction in employment. So let's say there's a thousand people making 725 an hour, right? Then the minimum wage doubles it's projected that four people out of that thousand will lose their job if they're adults. However, we're going to look at the teen side of this. For people, I believe it was 18 and under, the CBO projects that that is 12.8% reduction for every 100% increase. So if yeah. there's a thousand teens making 725 an hour that and that wage doubles, it's projected that 128 teens will not be employed. Okay, so what you're saying is more, more teens are likely to lose their jobs in this scenario. It, than... It's that's almost a bygone conclusion. More teens will have a harder time finding work. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was wondering why of... that is. It's well, if I'm looking at if I have very limited resources, especially with this increase in wage, and I have a 17 year old, and I have a 24 year old with more experience, like the more education, who's supporting a family, who am I going to hire? That's, that's a good point. Definitely. Yeah. I understand that. I wonder um, if this can be solved. I think we kind of briefly touched on it is um, the kind of tier system for mm -hmm. age groups. Um, I don't know if we really went into that as much as um, as we could. Mm -hmm. No, we did uh, not. We, and actually, no, I, the UK yeah, does okay. that. For instance. Go for it. So the UK uh, has a tiered age system. If you're 25 or older, it's and this is in pounds, so you're gonna have to look up your little converters for a sec. But eight, uh, 872 pounds per hour if you're 25 or older. That goes down to 820 pounds if you're between 21 and 24, and 645 pounds between 18 and 20. And finally, if you're between 16 years of age and 17, then you get four pound, four pounds and 55 pence per hour. So. There is a tiered minimum wage there. and But they do have a, even a higher... The, the crazy thing to me is that the youth unemployment in the UK is 11... As of 2019, so before pandemic, was 11.3%. Youth unemployment in the United States in 2019, youth unemployment was 9.1%. And we have across the board minimum wage. So I think they just have a harder time also. There's a lot of other factors going into that. But they just have a lot of... They have a particularly hard time hiring youth in the UK, it seems. Yeah, I think another thing that you mentioned to me earlier was that one of the dangers of this tiered system could possibly be that youth uh, youth might be hired at a higher rate just because employers know that they can pay them less. That's the other side of the coin, exactly. So that's another danger to look out for. I think one thing we should talk about uh, before we run out of time is if you don't mind, the kind of political aspect of this. Um, I know that um, you have it in, in the notes, just yeah. kind of how, how to pass this in the United States. 
Um, I mean, I know we have a 50-50 in the Senate right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Manchin's pushing against 15. Um, people, I think, Kirsten Cinema, um, if I got her name correctly. Yep. Um, just to speak on that a little bit, because that's confusing to me. It almost seems, and I know I heard this quote somewhere else uh, recently, it seems like because of the tight, very, very tight majority, let's call it, in the Senate, since we have 51 with the uh, vice president, um, is that any member going against the Democratic Party can act as a majority leader. And I think that's an interesting point, just because of how tight it is and how much you need to, you know, wrangle in the support. So um, if you could talk on that a little bit, that would really be helpful. Of course. Um, so the question is, would this be politically feasible? Can we pass a $15 minimum wage? Right now, every Republican on the Senate is publicly against passing a $15 minimum wage by 2025. It looks like the House of Representatives can pass it. The thing is, though, even though the Democrats have 51 votes, there's two big things. One is something called the filibuster, and two is something called Joe Manchin. <laughs> now, Joe Manchin, I would say, and, and Kristen Sinema, too. Uh, Joe Manchin, though, is probably the most powerful member of Congress in terms of individual vote for this 117th Congress. And here's why. So under normal rules, a senator uh, can filibuster a bill, meaning that they will block a bill from going to a vote. In the Senate, 60 votes out of the 100 are needed to end debate on a bill and move forward to the vote. So 41 senators out of the 100 can block a piece of legislation from passing just by blocking it from a vote because the Senate will have to move on to other bills and they'll drop that bill. Right? However, there's a process called budget reconciliation. Now, budget reconciliation is the House and Senate's way to quickly pass changes to the federal budget. Under budget reconciliation, normal rules do not apply. They're suspended because this is supposed to be a quick stopgap way to make changes to get certain budget targets. Now, a bill can be voted and passed with just a simple majority, 51 votes, which the Democrats, just Democrats, do have. However, there's also something called the Bird Rule from 1985, named after not a bird, but a senator, Senator Bird. This states that any bill going through budget reconciliation must directly affect federal government, one, revenues, two, spending, or three, the budget deficit. It has to affect one of those three areas, revenues, spending, or budget deficit directly. Therefore, many claim that mandating a $15 minimum wage cannot be done through a budget reconciliation because increasing everybody's minimum wage to $15 an hour does not directly affect one of those three things. Now, this puts the Senate parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough, in a very uncomfortable position because she's the one who's kind of the referee of the Senate. So she's going to decide and chime in if if this passes through budget reconciliation, if it goes through what they call the birdbath. And is approved. Now, the other thing is, uh, Chuck Schumer isn't bound by her. As a presiding officer, he can just say, we're not following Elizabeth McDonough's advice, and we're going to pass this. But that does not set a great precedent to just blow off the parliamentarian like that, the referee. Further, once again, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona are Democrats that both voice skepticism and are, as of right now, against a $15 minimum wage. So the House can pass it, but it's really, will this pass through one budget reconciliation, right, if, we, if it is even viable for budget reconciliation? Because it will not pass with regular rules. So how, how, what, how can they pass this? Or is there something that they could do, maybe bring it down to Manchin's $11 an hour? What do you think on that? If I actually could chime in, I think yep. virtually everyone listening to this, probably, probably uh, some amount of people know I'm very passionate about Senate procedure. I'm a dry subject to be interested in, but I think that this is really the only way that Democrats can actually enact uh, a $15 minimum wage for the foreseeable future, because 
if we look at how the Senate is composed, Democrats are never really at an, an advantage for the U.S. Senate. With gerrymandering, they never really at an advantage for the House of Representatives. So the fact that uh, Democrats, albeit uh, a very slim majority in both chambers, uh, have control over uh, the legislative body, I think, end up with uh, Joe Biden being president. This is really their only chance of really enacting a $15 minimum wage. And since Democrats don't have the vote to get rid of the filibuster, I don't really see any other way for them to really push through with this. But even then, uh, going back to what you were saying, saying how uh, majority leadership can override the Senate parliamentarian and set a dangerous precedent, I think, in all honesty, he should go for it. We've already mm-hmm. seen the Senate go down a very destructive path ever since um, Senate then-Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell obstructing uh, President Obama's agenda. And with him being majority leader, kind of seeing the downfall of the U.S. Senate, I think uh, Schumer has no choice but to go along this path if he really wants to get stuff done and really fulfill one of Biden's core promises of enacting a $15 minimum wage, something he campaigned on heavily in 2020. and was a concession he made to Senator Bernie Sanders uh, for Sanders to drop out of the primary and support Biden. Just my two cents. Mm-hmm. And what do you, so you don't think uh, the parliamentarian might buckle under pressure uh, from like just social and political pressure and worry maybe Chuck Schumer might make her lose her job, which is this has happened before in the 2001 books to uh, Bush tax credits where they threw out the parliamentarian because they didn't agree on that budget reconciliation. So will she will she maybe buckle under political pressure and say, yeah, that's that's OK. This is an OK ruling. Uh, regardless of uh, what happens, uh, I have a feeling Schumer is just going to ask her. Uh, is just going to end up overriding the parliamentarian. I think that's what the end goal is going to be. I know uh, when Democrats invoked the nuclear option uh, for lower court nominees in 2013, uh, which essentially means getting rid of the filibuster, they overrode the Senate parliamentarian for that. 2017, um, April of 2017, the Republican-led Senate did the exact same thing for Supreme Court nominations, and they did the uh, very similar thing in April of 2019 reduced debate time from uh, 30 hours to two hours for lower court nominees. So there actually is some precedent in uh, overriding the Senate parliamentarian. It's not something we should do, but there is precedent for that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm a I'm a big rules guy. I, I don't like just throwing rules to win. I feel like that's rule by law, not rule of law, in which we are underneath the laws and we need to abide by them. Because I feel like that protects us down the road, I mean, four to six years later, you might be in the minority, and then you have really, royally screwed yourself over. I mean. Right, that is a genuine possibility, but I think we've gone to a point so far in the last, ever since really November 2013, that we've seen a, an erosion in Senate procedure and really the downfall of uh, what uh, what the Senate once stood for. I see it as, it's not a question of if we'll go through this, it's a question of when and which side will uh, do this first. What are you guys thinking, Henry, Brian? Should they override yeah, the Senate parliamentarian if they have the chance? <laughs> yeah, you're, uh, you're wading into some uh, into some waters that I don't know too much about the rules, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can't really speak on that. Yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> it's it's difficult to chime in on that one. I think this is a great topic. Um, Senate Senate rules has always been in the filibuster, and Senate rules and and, and those things are something we should definitely talk about, though, um, because it, it's something that shapes policy in and kind of policy outcomes in ways that people don't know, mm-hmm. um, in very very serious ways. And that's something we should definitely talk about at some point. Yeah, practically, to get anything done in the U.S. government. You need 60 senators. If you, to get any law through, you need 60 senators nowadays. The Senate is now a 60-vote body because of that filibuster. And you could blame Mitch McConnell for that, uh, for what he did to Obama when he was the minority leader. Well, I've, th- this filibuster has been done on both sides, too. Democrats and Republicans have used this filibuster. And uh, I'm not playing partisan lines, but... Democrats were the first to use the nuclear option in 2013 to get rid of the filibuster for the lower court nominees. And then Mitch McConnell did that because the Democrats were blocking Trump's nominees for the Supreme Court. And to be perfectly honest, Neil Gorsuch was 
a pretty qualified nominee. Say what you will about his decisions or his politics, but his background was pretty qualified. I'm not disagreeing with anything you said on that. (laughs) But I think it's important to note that in the entire history of the United States, um, excluding President Obama, there were 79 uh, nominations to the executive and judicial branch um, that were filibustered, a total of 68. and under the Obama administration, that number was 79. So there was blatant obstructionism just for the sake of obstruction from uh, the Republican Senate or uh, Mitch McConnell leading uh, Republican senators in the minority. I don't think Democrats really had much of an option at that point. And if you fast forward when Republicans being control of the Senate in 2014 and how in 2016 they blockaded Merrick Garland and Democrats said we were, we were going to filibuster any nomination President, Trump's, uh, President Trump appoints to the Supreme Court, you really see it as a tit-for-tat situation. It was inevitable what was going to happen. Anyone, even a three-year-old, can predict what was going to happen. <laughs> so is, is there a way then out of this? Is there a way to come together? I guess as going back to the root of this show, is there a way to, you know, get everybody in a Miss Powell's townhome from last, last episode and really talk this out, really make rules we can abide by? Or is it just, is it just going to go down this spiral until we, I don't know, make two different countries. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've always been a firm believer of kind of the municipal, not municipal, but community-based organizing, um, you know, um, get, getting the information to people, making sure that these are some informed citizens and um, and helping people to make, not, not to be an elitist or detached from the people, but... Uh, helping the people to be informed and make the decisions. Um, I think that a lot of times the decisions are made behind closed doors. Um, I know that a lot of times um, this information is just, um, it's Greek to some people, even myself most of the time. (laughs) Um, But just helping people to understand how to access their own system of government, how to access policy, how to make change, um, I think, on a community level, that can really make a big difference. Uh, not keeping everything in Washington, um, you know, taking it down from Washington and helping it trickle down to the communities themselves. And it seems like perhaps we need a top-down approach. Where it, we we do control the politicians. The politicians are decided at the ballot box, but they become more partisan, and that is really a reflection of the United States and how the United States citizens have increasingly sorted themselves, more liberals going to cities and perhaps the suburbs as well, and more conservative going to more affluent suburbs and rural areas. And that has been an increase in that geographic polarization as well. And that increases groupthink, that increases polarization too. So I think it really needs to, and then that creates two different worlds in a way there. So we really need to have some way, maybe a top-down approach where politicians start setting an example, cool with the partisan rhetoric, and just talk as other friends. I mean, Dianne Feinstein, after hugging Grassley after the judiciary hearing, got huge backlash. People were asking her to step down and resign for hugging somebody else. It's Wow. And that's insane to me that... I mean, Justice Antonin Scalia, one of the most conservative justices on the Supreme Court in recent memory, and our Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the most liberal justices on the Supreme Court in recent memory, were both the very, very good friends in their personal lives. Oh, yeah. We need to start highlighting that relationship and start normalizing that although we do disagree, we can be friends. I think that's true. I think normalizing that relationship is a big big piece. I love to see people break from their party. I love to see people like um, Suzanne Collins or Susan Collins and um, Justin Amash. And Mitt Romney, you know, break from their party. I know that they do get uh, crucified in the backyard from time to time, <laughs> but um, I think that that is just, it shows a lot of courage to do something like that. I, I also think not to get into social media because uh, then we're getting way off topic, but social media is also a great way to get a lot of these ideas to kind of mix together. But at the same time, it creates these, these you know, uh, echo rooms where everybody just, you know, they, they group themselves into each other. And, and a lot of times you're, 
as we all know, you you start to only see things that you agree with, and it, it affirms your beliefs, and, and that's really dangerous in itself. But uh, somehow to use the things we have in place today to to break down those barriers of communities is really important. But that's for another time. <laughs> okay, we're all about ha- getting ready to get off right now, guys. So any final words, any final thoughts here? Um, the minimum wage needs to increase. It is, we don't know what the number should be, that's all. At least from my point okay, of view. Yeah. I think... I think the number is okay for me, but just implementing it in a way that can be fair and help people to survive and live, but also, I don't know, it's just such a complicated, it's such a complicated issue. Um, I, I know that people on either side of the issue believe that the facts are on their side, and if you look at it both ways, it can be. But at the same time, it's just not that simple. And uh, I think all we can do is is wait and see what happens with, under the the Biden administration and um, see kind of the outcomes and, and see how we can work from there. Yeah, the minimum wage definitely needs to be increased. As a matter of how it's going to get done and what it should be, I am very interested in seeing how that is going to happen relatively soon. I also do think it's it's about time. It's the longest span we've ever gone as a country, 12 years without increasing the minimum wage. Right now, 725, for instance, in 2009 would be 870 now. But even that, I think, perhaps is a little too low from the realistic standpoint of there are people who live on that wage. So I would say increase, but we must take in every voice here. We must take in those small businesses suffering from COVID right now. And we must take in those large businesses like Walmart, um, Hobby Lobby, all those guys too. But then, and finally, the employees at the center of all this. So once again, to everybody out there listening, thank you very much for tuning in. And stay political, stay informed, stay classy. <laughs>